Welcome to the Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real-world guide to real estate investment and property management. Welcome to Behind the Curtain Podcast. I'm Glenn Green. And I'm Brett Bernard. Today we're going to be talking about the discussion about the moratorium on foreclosures, and we're going to have a guest on, Trey, who's an investor of ours, who is new to in Memphis as an investor, but also a seasoned investor outside of the state of Tennessee. And we'll be talking a little bit about uh, current home sales in the U.S. and how, how things are going in Memphis, which is a little better than other places in the country. And we'll touch a little bit on why the value of the property and the purchase price of the property doesn't really make a difference. All it depends is the cash flow and the income that it produces. Obviously, the market's still very hot, but I don't know about you, Glenn, but I do. I, I feel a cooling. In other words, I'm seeing more properties available than we had a month ago. A month ago, if you weren't paying eight, nine grand over asking, you weren't getting a property. I mean, it was almost impossible. I wrote 42, 43 offers in the month of May, and I think I probably got four, maybe five of those. Um, the rest of them were declined at market or 5,000 over market, or even I had one in Carrieville that was 25,000 over market, and we didn't get. Um, and they were declined because somebody outbid us. Well, let's talk about why the market is hot. The market is hot because there's low inventory. Okay, so you got more owner occupants and investors than you have inventory. That causes competition, which then has risen or raised up the market value, especially in the eastern suburbs. Um, so people that wanted to just upgrade aren't doing it because they're going to sell high and buy high which makes no sense, right? Typically, what you want to do is is sell and then go find something reasonable, but there's nothing reasonable out there. So the people that want to upgrade, they're not buying. Only ones that are selling right now are people going through a divorce, people being transferred in their job, or in a state sale where there's been a death in the family. Those That's about it. Right. And as a result, you got everybody clamoring to fight over the inventory that, that is there. And it was crazy a couple of months ago. Uh, I would have, I think on one, I had 22 offers in just a few days' time. That was the one you sold for 30 something thousand over asking mm-hmm. in Cordova, I remember. Yeah. My guy put a bid on it, and we were 8,000 over asking, and I wasn't even close. <laughs> so, well, but here's, here's what's happening now, though. So all the owner occupants who are going to buy have purchased, or they're in the process of purchasing. Uh, as we get closer to school starting, they're all going to get moved, get their kids registered. The owner occupant market will cool off, and when that happens, then we'll see less competition for the for the inventory, which then we'll have more inventory than buyers. Yeah. And I've told every investor in the last two months that I've talked to, let's look for properties now, but be patient and wait for October, November, December, and at that time. We'll, we'll get hot and heavy on properties and writing a lot of offers because I don't, it doesn't make financial sense. When I run the numbers for my investors, it makes no sense for you to buy something today because you, you're going to pay $180,000 for it in Cordova. Mm-hmm. Come January, you might get that exact same house for 165000 because there's so few buyers yep. and there's more inventory. I went to a showing in Cordova uh, last week. And I was only there for about 15 minutes taking pictures. And while I was there, four different couples came through. 
Yeah. Now you multiply that times three days of showings, and you can see why I can get twenty two offers on property. It's because you've got fifty couples trying to get it. Well, at this point, I would encourage any investors out there that are looking to buy to cool cool down a little bit. I've got I've got Michael. I won't mention his last name. He's been on the show before. I've gotten him cooled off a little bit. We're going to sit tight. Till I, t- I said, listen, we're going to wait to two weeks before Thanksgiving before we start looking again, because that's when we'll find the deals you want to get. Um, so I would encourage the investors listening uh, and buyers listening, just be patient. Take your time. Wait until the fall and the winter months, because that's when you can get your better deals, your better rate of return. You'll have you'll have sellers right now. You can put an offer on a property. You go back to negotiate with repairs, and they're like, nope. We'll sell it to somebody else. And they just move on. Yeah. When there's more inventory than buyers, you can go and renegotiate those prices for repairs and get them down further to get a new roof put on or get, you know, uh, rotted wood repaired or whatever's got to be done. And in the summertime, this summer, it's been very difficult. I've lost more deals over repair issues than I have since I started doing this. Yeah. I think the the there'll be pressure on certain investors that are doing 1031 exchanges where they have a, a schedule that they have to meet. So if you're doing a 1031 exchange, you got to be careful about when you sell and how much time you have to pick up properties and use the money from the 1031. If, if I was doing a 1031, I would wait till August 1st, list my property for sale, probably get it sold out by end of August cash that money in now you got october and november to identify and you got through december or january to close them out yep then you've got you've got the right time um doing it in the summertime it's don't get me wrong i know you have and i've i've the last two months i've done more i've done almost two million Mm dollars um they haven't closed yet but i've written that much um simply because people are coming out of the woodwork to buy they they act like it's it's at the end of 2021 you will never be allowed to buy another rental property or another home until the end of time till jesus christ himself lands back on this planet and says it's the end of time that's how they're acting it's it's uh i've had every investor ask me can you explain to me what's going on i'm like i can't or they'll say well what do you think we ought to do with 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 this offer you think it's gonna you know we can get a better deal in 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 the fall and i'm like sure i'm assuming so but i also assumed at the beginning of this year the ridiculousness we see now what wouldn't be happening i said so i'm predicting the fall but who knows i mean this year has been so odd yep there's there's been so much that has occurred since the spring of last year that we're in a different kind of market of course we said that in 08 but uh, yeah you know it, it'll come back it always does that's the thing about real estate it always ends up going up higher than than where it was you know um so nobody should sweat it you, should, you but your timing has to be right in terms of purchasing i would rather work with somebody uh in the month of december Mm-hmm. When I know I'm not competing with anybody because everybody's focused on the holidays, great time to buy. Yeah, Richard and I had that conversation on the last podcast about when when the right time to buy would be. Um, we also talked about the market and what we're seeing now. And, and you're right. Guys that are buying to hold 
who cares if the market changes 10% next year? Because it's going to come back 15% the year after. Um, if you're getting into it for a quick one, two-year turn, try to make a 10 or 15% profit, which all these hedge fund groups are doing now, uh, yeah, you run the risk of buying at a number and then being upside down 10% when, you, when you're ready to cash out. And you may have to hold that property three years or four years before you see that that return. But if you're in it for a 10 to 15, 20-year hold, retirement, it, it the market changes do, they don't matter it doesn't matter even the worst housing market this country has ever seen in 08 and 09 by 2012 and 13 what happened we were right All back where back. we start where yep. we fell from and we exceeded that significantly significantly since then so so don't don't freak out if the market does twist a little bit next year don't start liquidating hold on to it yeah, don't play it like stocks. Don't buy high and sell low. I still don't get that. I, I crack up when the the market changes 80 points and everybody starts selling off, like as if it's going to go down and it's never coming back up. What I would do is I would hang on to it, or I would go ahead and cash out and put all my money in the bank and wait for it to bottom out and then buy twice the amount of stocks and let it ride back up. Yeah. I, of course, I'm not in the stock market, and there's a reason behind that, but um, I don't, I don't but those, understand. Those opportunities are coming in the real estate market next year because there will be foreclosures, yep. and you'll be able to get good deals. Very good deals. You know? Very good deals. The CFPB is putting in place regulations that, effective August 31st, uh, to let the mortgage servicer know that they can't file for foreclosure until uh, the beginning of 2022. Okay. So you're looking six months? Yeah. Okay. And we went through that when we were doing loss mitigation work at, at uh, RMC, Losses yes. Leonard Eden. We helped and over 500 families during that time. Keep their homes. Yeah, keep their um, homes. But granted, this is a different scenario, okay? In today's time, now with the city, you know, with with restrictions loosening up, there's no reason for people not to be back at work. So, what I what I hope will happen is that mortgage companies will go through and do the forbearance plans, do the uh, uh, some form of a modification, and bring people current because everyone should be back at work. And I don't think that the regulation is is designed to eliminate the payments that are owed. Those payments are still going to be owed yeah. uh, eventually. And so, like you said, a forbearance plan is probably the best thing to do because it allows them to get caught up at some point uh, or add those payments to the back of the loan. Do you think that this moratorium for six months, let's say January 2nd hits, and all the banks out there who have a lot of non-performing loans are not going to allow themselves to get caught like they did in 2008, 2009. Yeah, but I, I start don't start foreclosing. I don't think that the level of foreclosures is going to be anywhere near no. what happened in 08, 09. But do you think that maybe this moratorium is only setting up a larger issue six to eight months from now when all of a sudden we go through 2022 and we have a rash of foreclosures, which what happens you end up with a lot of short sales foreclosures banks liquidating properties which then drives down property costs and now you've you've hurt the real estate market once again through a through a program that's meant to do some good 
but is it really going to do any good? If I owe the bank $30,000 by January, I can't pay 30000 back. I couldn't pay the note to begin with. Well, so that's what's going to be a solution for that is what my question That's when they're going to bring back the forbearance programs, and there will be some short sales as well, perhaps some loan modifications, just like 08, 09. My point is there's nowhere near the number of foreclosures coming that we had in 08, 09 when the, when the whole market collapsed. So well, I think on the market of, will hold it well. On top of the market collapsing, we also had a crushed economy where people were unemployed. Yeah. So, you know, in today's market, people are employed. If President Biden gets his his financial brain in order and understands that that uh, you've got to continue to drive down unemployment and you've got to continue to push people to go back to work because by the time, if we haven't reached that point, by the time the foreclosure moratorium starts, you're going to end up with a ton of foreclosures because no one's going to be back at work. Now, they're going to be so far behind, the bank's going to look at them and say, well, you only make four grand a month. You don't qualify for a forbearance. There's no way you'll ever get caught up. So therefore, we have no choice to foreclose. And we saw that over and over again when we were trying to help people. Some people did not have the ability to get caught up. So the bank said, there's nothing we can do for you. We either pay it all or we have to foreclose. Uh, So some of those cases, we could not win. By the time the foreclosures start, they're not going to have any means to get caught up anyway. So therefore, the foreclosure crisis is going to be tenfold versus what it actually would end up being. But if they were out of work some of the time this year and last year because of COVID, and they've fallen behind, that means that they have six months, starting August 31st, to uh, get caught up. Mm-hmm. And then if they don't get caught up by January, then the process can start. Now, we know in the state of Tennessee, you have 60-day uh, notice of right to foreclose, and then another 30 days for them to schedule a, a foreclosure. So at least in the state of Tennessee, even if the moratorium is over on January 1, it's still going to be another at least 90 days before they could be foreclosed upon. Right. I I would think after the mess we went through in 2008, 2009, banks would be very reluctant to foreclose because they took back so much property. They ended up getting rid of it for pennies on the dollar. I know they didn't make money. Some uh, Bank of America made money. They made a lot of money off of it. But most banks got shorted. Uh, didn't make any money off of it. Insurance companies were were, were just almost completely depleted paying the, the mortgage insurance on the losses, and it, it, it was just a domino effect. So well, I, I just see a contradiction here. I don't think you can – I don't think this moratorium on foreclosures is going to do any good until we fix the issue of people not going back to work. Um, I don't think you can have both of those simultaneously. I think at the end, both of those are going to merge and they're going to collide like 280 cars doing 80 miles an hour, and it's going to be a, a, just a disaster. We, Glenn and I witnessed it for five years. We went through this day in and day out, and we watched people, unfortunately, be the victims of what our government did 20 years prior with the, uh, the Jimmy Carter's what was it, Re, uh, Community Reinvestment Act, and it just perpetuated itself to the point where you could go into a bank, say, my name's Brett Bernard, I have a pulse, and I make a million dollars a year, and I want to buy this $700,000 house. Great, Mr. Bernard, here, sign right there. A month later, I go to close with no ability to pay for it. Um, that was the end result of all of the Jimmy Carter's Community Reinvestment Act, which kept getting propagated and added on to and built up to the point where 
Congress was telling banks, if you don't loan money to these people, we're going to penalize you and we're going to take away your ability to lend money. So they were giving money away as fast as they could get it. Yeah. We and created that. We created that monster. It all and started Fannie in the Mae 70s. and the VA and Freddie Mac were all guilty of it because you had members of Congress who were involved with those entities and they encouraged them to loan money. They, matter of fact, I forget who said it, but they said home ownership is a right. Well, no, it's not. It's not. Only if you qualify. But like Brett said, these uh, no-doc loans, stated income, all you had to do was tell them how much you made and you could get a loan. Yeah. And that, that, that's my point. The, so Jimmy Carter's Community Reinvestment Act was a great idea. Okay, and when it originally came out, what was in it was was good for the community. It was good for everybody. But then you had the next president added this on to it, and you had Bill Clinton expanded it, and then they created these other programs for you know people that made twenty thousand dollars a year to get a hundred percent no down payment loan. Every administration kept tacking onto this and building this to where it became a bloated Titanic, and it eventually just sank. And uh, and I just don't want us to see go down that. I don't want us to go down that road again. And this, this is how that gets started. This moratorium will kick in in January. They'll probably extend it another six months, and they'll add on some other uh, stipulations to it, and then it'll begin to get to the point where it's going to get out of control. But eventually, it's going to. We're going to have to pay the piper, as as we figured out in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Well, when you add into it inflation, which is kicking in, uh, consumer price index being up. Um, we know that the cost of construction materials has gone up significantly this year. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the only thing that hasn't gone up is interest rates because the Fed has chosen to stay at zero. But that can't last forever. No. Unfortunately. Eventually, you know, we have to pay for it. I emailed Kroger yesterday. I was so mad when I walked out of there. So I go in there to buy groceries. And, and the spend is spending 250 I'm spending 375 now. I mean, it's, everything is just so much more expensive. But I had a cart full, so I didn't go through the self-checkout where they like for you to go because they had too much items. So I went through the regular checkout, and there's one girl checking out, nobody bagging groceries. So I paid more for groceries, dealt with a very unfriendly checkout clerk, and then had to go bag my own damn groceries. I was really mad about that when I walked out. I'm like, this is getting ridiculous. I have to go in and bag my own groceries and pay an inflated price at Kroger. So I'm going to go to Walmart next week with the same receipt and just buy the exact same stuff and see if there's a difference. Yeah. Beginning of the year, we had a, we had a lot of newbies. Um, when I mean newbies, guys buying their first home, second home, um, spent a lot of time in real estate seminars and listened to podcasts and educating themselves, and now they're ready to jump off the deep end board and buy a house. Uh, now I'm getting calls from seasoned investors that have 15, 20 properties around the country and are now realizing the Memphis market is one of the hottest places to buy rentals because I have one guy that has properties in Utah, another guy in Arizona, uh, all over the country, and they all say the same thing, that, there's, that things are so hyperinflated your ROI, if you get 6%, you're lucky. In Memphis, on a bad day, we can at least get 8 yeah, When the maybe. times were good last year, we were getting 10 11 and 12% yes. return. Yeah. And we'll get back to that next year. So that, to me, 
lately I've been getting a lot more seasoned investors to know what they're doing, which makes my life so much easier. Educating a new investor is tough because they run your ragging on these little $25,000 crack houses and uh, <laughs> all the things that you really don't want to mess with, but you do because you hope to bring them along to where they become a long-term investor. The new guys love them to death and they make us money, but they are a lot of work. I think every in- investor should have at least one crack house. Well, I'll send them to you then. <laughs> when they call me tomorrow, I'll be like, here, call my buddy Glenn. He'll take care of you. <laughs> I will tell you a funny story, Richard. So so Glenn's been swamped. He's dealing with Jack's houses. So uh, last week on Monday, I think it was, he texted me a number and says, hey, I'm swamped. I don't have time to deal with this guy. You know, he's looking to buy a house. And I'm like, all right, fine. So I'll call the guy. First words out of his mouth is like, well, my budget's about fifty, sixty thousand dollars. I'm like, great, here we go again. I'm gonna be on Third Street, carrying a gun, looking at houses. This is gonna be fun for me. But in our conversation, he goes, Yeah, my partner and I, we've got a couple million dollars, so we want to buy at least 10, 12, 13 of them this year. <laughs> so next time I was all glad I went back to him, remember that guy you said to me? He goes, Yeah, well, they're about to spend two million dollars. <laughs> yeah, I looked at him and said, Merry Christmas, Brett. <laughs> so I you know, when people say the number to me, I I shouldn't. I shouldn't automatically conclude that's what it's going to be, um, but uh, because well, I do have people that buy fifty thousand dollars houses, but they buy ten. So I'm well, good with but that. most of the time they learn pretty quickly that the fifty thousand dollars price point isn't the best price point for them if they want reasonable tenant quality, right? Okay, in the long term, and so really now. In Whitehaven and Raleigh, it's more of a eighty thousand dollar price point. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is is if if you buy a home for fifty thousand dollars, you're going to get what you pay for, and you're going to get the type of tenant that you pay for. And then what's going to happen is your ROI will be twelve percent or thirteen percent. But at the end of the day, when you've lost an air conditioner or they've torn the house apart and you've had to evict and release twice in a year because you can't keep a tenant paying. You run your numbers at the end of the year, and you realize your ROI is about four, five percent. If so, you made any money, so sometimes you're right. So sometimes you're better off taking a lesser ROI with a little bit better tenant, a little bit better area, because you don't have all the the long term effects. So I get this question a lot. I like this house. It's listed for eighty five thousand. I looked on Zillow. It says it's worth seventy three thousand. So I run in CMA, and the CMA says it's worth seventy five thousand. But they want eighty eighty five for it, but it rents for a thousand a month. So the question then becomes: What's more important, the property value or the ROI? Does it matter that you're going to pay eighty five thousand for a house that rents for a thousand a month, even though a CMA says it's worth seventy five? Why would it? Because your ROI is still great. Everybody trusts the internet, Zillow, TrulyARealtor dot com, and all of that. Just because they say it's worth eighty or seventy five. It's really worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Correct. And well, that's that, where we are today. And there, people are willing to pay more than market value or suggested market value because there's no inventory out there. Well, then that brings like me back said, to my question. So what's the value of that property? If it rents for 1000 a month and people are using the 1% rule, then to that investor who wants that property, it should be worth $100,000, right? Market says it's worth seventy five. We know it's going to go up. It's going to go up to 80, 85, and 90 eventually. But does it matter what you pay for that property as long as you're you're hitting your 1% or better? On a, a long-term hold, no. Right. 
That's my point. So let's say it's like 185 and he's 10 grand worth of work and you pick it up for 75. It's still renting for a thousand a month. You're all in it for eighty five, ninety thousand. Your ROI is still one percent or better annually. So you're in great shape. And I try to I try to drill that into investors' heads. Quit focusing on the asking price. Quit focusing on the market value. Focus on what it rents for, because that's where you you're in this for income, right? You're not in this for assets. Yes, it'll eventually be a good asset for you, but you're in it to make income. So focus on the income part of the property, and therefore that will dictate to you what you're willing to pay for that property. Then you can get more competitive with these other investors who are using the same theory. And I, I couldn't figure out why these investors were paying over asking for properties until it hit me. I started going back and looking at the ones we lost, and I realized they rented for $100 over what the rule would be to get 1% for asking. So they're willing to fudge that number because the rent comps allow them to make the money they want to make. So it didn't matter if they went five grand over asking. So sit down and pencil that out each time you look at a property. It'll help you determine whether it's worth going after or not. Well, that's why we, as a a part of our standard process of working with investors, we provide what we think the market value is, which comes from RPR, Realtors Property Resource, the annual taxes, the estimated rent or the current rent of his tenant occupied, and then I tell the investor, you figure out what, what your ROI is and how much you're willing to pay for the house in order to maintain the ROI that you're looking for. And so if that means they can offer over asking, that's what we do. Now, they always ask me, what do you think we ought to offer? I'm like, well, that depends on what your expectation is of ROI. Mm-hmm. Look at your ROI and determine how much you're willing to pay to get that number that you're looking for, and don't go above it. You know. Also, look for future ROI deals. In a hot market, most of what I'm buying now for my investors is is future stuff. In other words, they want 140, 100 grand for the house. It's renting for 750 a month, but it should be renting for 1100 a month. But the person's been there for five years, so it's rented way under market. Um, find out how much time's left on the lease. And all of a sudden you realize they're on month to month at 750. You can take them to 850, 900 tomorrow, uh, and then 1,000 the next year and 1,050 the next year. Then you're, look at your future ROI if you're long-term holding and quit focusing on today's ROI. Then the value doesn't matter again because you're looking at what you're going to be making long-term on the property over taking a short hit to get the property and be competitive um, and then bump the rent. So look for deals like that. I, all my investors in the last month, that's all we're purchasing. We bought some stuff in Cordova. $180,000 house rented for $1,400 a month, but market rent $1,695. What we're going to do is slowly bump that rent up over the next two years and get him to the point he wants to be. He'll be in a safe neighborhood, upper class tenant, house built in the 2000s. He'll have everything he wants, but he's taking a short on the RRI short term to get his investment where he needs. He's going to build his investment to where he wants it to be. We we have certain investors, or property owners, should I say, who became de facto landlords when the 08-09 recession came around. And so they just, as long as they had a tenant in there paying something, they never raised the rent. And so then they come to me and say, I need you to sell this property, tenant occupied, but it's $250 a month under market. Now, last year, that wouldn't have flown. Investors would say, no, I'm not going to give them X. I'm going to lower that because I want my ROI. And now with inventory being as low as it is, 
they're willing to jump out there and go ahead and pay more for it, and they'll bring that market rent up. Some states do have regulations on how much you can increase year over year. And it's not relative to what the market rent is. It's relative to what the current rent is. In the state of Tennessee, that does not exist. If they don't want to pay for a rent increase, they can move out at the end of the lease. You know, so and that's what's happening is rents are starting to come up now because what happened was market values went up, but rents did not. But now rents are coming up and they're going to move up over the next two or three years if if uh, President Biden uh, does not make moves that, that hurts the economy and reduces employment. So it's a good time to buy even if the rent is below market. So, Trey, I appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a little bit of pain to get in with us today, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do it. So um, I just wanted to kind of go over um, your personal experience in the investment world. Um, I, if I understand, you you guys have properties in other states currently? Yes. So we've, we have properties in uh, Texas. Um, we also had a rental in Colorado, which actually we've moved back into that rental. So that's our primary residence. So we don't currently have a rental in Colorado, and then we've got uh, we've got one in Memphis and under contract on two more. We got two. We're currently working on uh, repair issues now. That's exact. That's exactly right. And we're very excited about it. Uh, Memphis. Uh, Memphis is our our focus market at, at this point. So we're very very excited. What what actually brought you to Memphis? I hear different stories from different investors, what drove them here, but what? Where, how did you find Memphis and what got your interest about Memphis to begin with? Um, so, so part of it is, part of it is kind of happenstance. Uh, over the years, I've spent a little bit of, a little bit of time in Memphis just for work events, coming out for, for different things over the years and, uh, and became interested in, in Memphis that way. Um, but more recently, um, you know, quite honestly, it's the exceptional rent growth that's going on in Memphis right now that was uh, really appealing to me as an investor. Um, and so, like I said, years ago, made made some work trips out there, um, just grow to grow to understand and, and like the city. Um, there are several organizations out there, uh, such as like St. Jude's that I that I really uh, respect, and and we you know we donate money to St. Jude's, and I have a buddy that worked at International Paper, and certainly the uh, the existence of FedEx there doesn't hurt, um, and so started looking into just the you know the the macroeconomics of Memphis, came to understand it as being a, a fairly affordable city, but a city that certainly was uh, was growing. It was you know you know when you talk to people across the country, uh, when you talk when you hear of Tennessee, you you, you hear and talk about Nashville, um, but I really came to appreciate Memphis and the vibe that Memphis has, and certainly the rental market, particularly in the suburbs, was really good. And so a lot of different things, but you know, economy is kind of what put us over the top. Yeah, Nat- Nashville is Nashville has hit a hyperinflation point where it's extremely difficult to get a decent rental with a good ROI. Um, so you know. Most investors, when they first come to Memphis, I don't think they realize the makeup of Memphis. When you have almost half the city inside the city limits rent, and the majority of those folks work in the distribution business. They work at FedEx. They work at uh, Nike, Amazon, um, 
Pacific Paper. They they're all in these distribution facilities, driving forklifts, loading boxes, uh, or working in you know mid management. So they don't make a ton of money, and the majority of them rent. So it, it's created a market for us, a rental market that's huge. Right, right, and it's you know it's it's untapped too. I mean, if you think about you know typical investors such as myself, where you know if we care about cash flow, then we're really trying to. Um, trying to go with the one percent rule, and when you when you look across the U.S. right now, there are places where it's nearly impossible to hit that one percent rule. Memphis is one of the one of the places that uh, one of the only places I've studied um, where you can still hit that as an investor. Now it's not as prevalent as it was this time last year because the market got a little wacky this summer, um, but we're able to obtain a ten percent gross or the one percent rule. Uh, probably two out of maybe one out of three times Glenn would you say last year you could do it all day long it's just been a little tight and I think as we move toward fall it's going to be a little easier to hit that one percent and maybe even better on your ROI right right yeah we're, we're excited too because we're we are starting to see you know when you say softening it has sure. a negative connotation but cooling, when we're talking about cooling. you know coming off of historical highs you know, we, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a little bit of a softening in demand, at least relative to supply. You're starting to see a little bit of an uptick in MLS supply. Um, you're starting to see homes sit on the market a little bit longer. So I, I'm really excited about that. Just we, you know, as you know, we've been working with you and we've, uh, you know, we've put, <laughs> I'm probably wearing you out over there, Brett, because we put in a lot of uh, offers and uh, I enjoy it though. <laughs> and so we're, we're excited to, you know, to up our batting average, so to speak, when it comes to offers and, right. and deals closed. Well, we managed to put two offers in and get both of them at asking. Right. You know how rare that is this year? <laughs> I, I, I feel fortunate, that's for sure. You have two unicorns, because that's hard to do. Yes, yes, agreed. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. As we get closer into summer, into summer, get into fall, um, things are things are definitely going to loosen up, and we'll be able to get properties and get that 1% that you're looking for. Um, you know, I've talked to Leah your your wonderful wife about this and i don't i don't know if i've had this conversation with you but you know this summer we've been looking for a lot of properties that have future prospect so something we pay a hundred thousand for this rent for 750 a month but it's two hundred dollars under market um to where we buy it now wait for the lease to expire and then once that lease expires we can bring it up to the kind of of investment that an investor would want get you to that one percent so we've been doing a lot of that this summer just trying to play games with the numbers because the one percent rule out of the gate was just so hard to find and i believe one that we got for you was was a significant jump in the rent the first one we bought way undervalued and that's you know certainly your your guidance has been great because um you know as an investor you could take a look at what that current rent is and say oh that doesn't even get close to the one percent rule um, but it's you, you got to think of it as untapped potential, correct? And so certainly that first deal has a, has a ton of untapped potential, and uh, you know by the way, I mean you know we we can uh, you know we've got a couple of options, right? Whenever you do that, you try to you try to get the current renter up to market value or close to market value, and if you don't, then I actually don't see that as a loss because that gives me an opportunity to go in and and uh, you know harden the asset a bit, right? If it's sure. If it's got carpet, I can put in vinyl plank. If it's, you know, if uh, if it's got older appliances, I can replace the appliances. <laughs> if we can, if we can find any to buy, of course, because of the supply issues all over the world. But um, but yeah, we we look at that as an opportunity to go ahead and harden that asset. 
that helps us reduce our, you know, our expenses going forward, and of course makes it a, a more desirable asset to rent it at. So, um, so I don't, I don't even necessarily see that as a loss. And you know, you, you hear all these stories about, you know, uh, getting, you know, getting uh, tenant-occupied homes, and and I've, I've certainly heard my share, my fair share of horror stories on that. And so, you know, certainly if, uh, you know, if we have to turn the home, it's not, not that big of a deal. I see that as uh, a lot of times being, uh, being a positive outcome for us. Yeah, we were talking earlier about that, about quit focusing on, I'm going to ask you this question. I haven't asked you this question yet. Um, so when you're looking at a property, let's say it's $85,000, you run a CMA, it says it's worth 78000 so they're selling it for over what CMA says it's worth, but it rents for nine fifty to a thousand a month. Are you as concerned about what you're paying for it, or are you just mainly focused on the cash flow side and the income you can make from it, which kind of makes the the value and the purchase price immaterial? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. So for us, we're long term hold investors, and so for us, uh, we we're not as wrapped around the axle. In terms of the the CMA versus uh, versus what the asking rent is for for us the the home's value is derived by the income that it generates, and so as long as it's generating good income for us, like like you were saying over the one percent rule, then uh, then that's the focus. Now, you know, does that does that affect the uh, you know the the wealth building in the short term? Yeah, I suppose it does. But if we're if we're ten year hold, then I'm not I'm not as concerned with that. So we. Yeah, we, we, we're more focused so buy, on the income. You buy stocks at a certain price in hopes that they'll grow and then turn into what you want them to be. I mean, that's, I don't know why more people don't buy real estate that way. To me, a lot of people get wrapped around the value versus what they're paying for it and not looking at the actual income that it produces. Because like, I agree with you totally. The value of that property is dictated by the income it produces. End of story. Right. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a really good parallel with the stock market because, you know, we we see people buy like particularly like tech stocks, right? Like the hot the hottest tech stock, you'll see people buy at a really high PE ratio. And it's like, well, you know, well, why are you doing that? Well, because it's producing dividends, and there's a you know a lot of there's been a lot of stock price appreciation and such, and so it seems like you're right. The you know the real estate investor is is wrapped or a lot of times wrapped around the axle. Uh, very similar to the PE ratio, um, with the difference between a CMA and the asking rent, and, and yeah, it's all it's all about the income. So, correct. Much much less concerned about uh, the delta between CMA and and uh, what we pay for it. Right, right, okay. Well, Trey, I know you're a busy man. I just wanted to to get you on today and get your perspective and uh, hear a little bit about what you got going on and why you came to Memphis. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And our, we you know we get a lot of new investors that listen to this show. Uh, so our, obviously, our job is to try to educate them on the right approach and and why you should choose Memphis. Why you should choose Brett Bernard or Glenn Green. Um, uh, you know, hopefully, we do a good job for you. So, so yeah, yeah. If you've got thirty seconds and you don't mind a shameless plug for you guys. Absolutely not. We, uh, you know, we decided on coming to Memphis uh, last Thanksgiving, and we found a realtor that we thought, you know, we thought we liked, and it 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 actually went sideways really quickly, to the point where, to the point where I I felt guilty because we had a deal underway, but I I felt at the end of the day that this realtor was actually 
they were actually sabotaging my deal. There was just a personality conflict and we just couldn't make it work. And so, so I actually, I did what, what every uh, great, you know, businessman does. I, I asked my wife to find the next realtor. <laughs> <laughs> and I outsourced that to my wife and, and she found you. And obviously we interviewed you, we interviewed a few others and, and we decided to go ahead and go with you guys. And I tell you, the experience has been fantastic. Um, you've, you, you know what the investor wants, which is a big deal. And I think big, a big part of the reason it didn't, uh, it didn't work out with my last realtor is they, they just weren't, we, they weren't investor focused. And you hear that term all the time. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered like, well, what the heck does that mean? Well, I tell, I tell you guys, I, I know what that means now. Um, and so we've gotten to a point in really very short order where we, we trust you a great deal to, I appreciate that, you know, you know what we're looking for, you know, what we're, what we're not looking for. Um, you know, you've toured assets for us, you've given us, you've given us your opinion and, and it's been invaluable at times because as a, as an out of state investor, um, you know, we need our realtor to, to keep us out of the mud, right? Um, we, we need we need you guys to be our eyes and ears. And, and at times, we need you to kill the deal, even though that goes against your bottom line. And so what I've really appreciated is uh, you, you've gained our trust, and, and we know that we're not just going to do a deal because it's another deal under your belt. We're going to do a deal because you think it's a good investment, and it, uh, it aligns with our strategy. Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of agents out there that just want to do a deal, get a check. They're not concerned with the long-term effect of their advice or their decision making um glenn and i both are cut from the same cloth we we focus on the investor first we design the business is actually designed for out-of-town investors i mean everything that we do is designed for people that can't physically put boots on the ground here in memphis um and through that process and and through mentoring with glenn glenn has taught me a lot on how to handle that like how to how to deal with out of town investors. So I've got my spiel that I give you when we first talked, uh, and it's not a really a spiel, but it's just kind of give you a level of this is what I do. This is how we do this. This is point A, and here's point B and C, D, and this is how we end up closing. Um, and the system works. It's it's a lot of work for us, but I love doing it. I, I wouldn't do anything different. And what I tell my investors is that I I want to be proud of what I helped them buy and 10 or 15 years from now I want them to come back to me to sell it I don't want them to say I'm not going to use Glenn to sell it because he forced me to buy this thing anyway you know so we keep you out of bad neighborhoods and we keep you out of properties that don't that maybe need too much deferred maintenance or maybe it's not the right fit for you. I'm not interested in just selling a property. True. Right. No, that makes sense. And especially when you're talking about investors, it's, it's the long-term relationship there. Even if you kill a few deals along the way and, you know, all in all the, the, uh, the relationship works best when there's uh, complete transparency between the two parties. Well, Trey, I really appreciate the kind words, and uh, I will be in touch with y'all either tonight or tomorrow. All right, buddy. Thank you for your time, Trey. Have a good day, buddy. Thank you, Trey. My pleasure. Take care, fellas. Okay, man. See you. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real-world guide to real estate investment and property management. Be sure to subscribe at BehindTheCurtainPodcast.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Enterprise Property Management's real estate services, please visit us on the web at epmrealestate.com. This has been a Sound Ideas Group production for Enterprise Property Management, Inc. Oh, 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 oh,